0: Let's face it, AI has gotten a pretty bad rap in the media and pop culture. Just think of Terminator, Blade Runner, or Ex Machina. But I think it's time that we give AI a fair shake. Welcome to Practical AI. The Capacity for Good, where we speak with some of the brightest minds in the industry about the exciting intersection of AI automation, customer support, and customer experience, and how we can use the latest and greatest technology to help teams do their best work.
1: Hello, my name is James Deal. Welcome to Practical AI, The Capacity for Good a podcast where we discuss trends in customer experience and how AI is making an impact. Today, joining me is Charles Shealy, an information technology professional with over 20 years of technology and entrepreneurial experience, who's currently working as a Google Cloud engineer, where he focuses on expanding the consumption of some of the world's most powerful cloud capabilities into modern application management ecosystems. Charles, welcome to the
2: podcast. Thank you very much. Nice to be here.
1: So I love to start most of my podcast here with just kind of understanding a little bit more about who my guest is so that our audience can connect. So I'd love to understand a little bit about your background, what brought you to what you're doing today and what is getting you up every morning right now?
2: Well, certainly. Well, I didn't study this. I studied biology and then next thing you know, it turns out I'm a computer nerd. So that's just what I did professionally and threw away all of my college experience. But yeah, I've climbed the ranks from PC repair to where I am. So, what's interesting is my background here is very much infrastructure focused, which is somewhat antithetical to a lot of the new skills that Google's employing in the cloud because it's so dev focused. And I have developed, I used to, you know, contribute open source. So, I've always sort of been sort of the jack of all trades guy. And guess what cloud is? Cloud is just an automated jack of all trades of, of everything you've ever done in IT. So, the diversity has kind of helped me there. In terms of you know building what I've done, because it's funny, I joined Google three and a half years ago after having been in IT sales for 15 years selling infrastructure, selling disks. EMC taught me how to sell big disk subsystems to enterprise. And but I knew I was in an infrastructure space that was a diminishing piece of the pie in terms of total IT consumption, at least it definitely in terms of mind share and skill set growth. So I sought it out because I knew that. I was selling into every enterprise increasingly was asking about cloud as I was building their physical infrastructures. And I was increasing the pressure to have to become fluent in it. So I thought, well, I'm not that awesome in it, but I'm a pretty good open source developer. So I sought all three of the major three cloud providers and I chose Google. And I was fortunate enough to be hired by Google. And So it's been great because I my open source background and it are really kind of Really closely aligned with each other because they really built almost every open source thing you know, you know, as Google. So they're behind almost every other cloud provider. Half the tech they're running is Google tech. So that was really what drew me to it was feeling like they were sort of an origin cloud, even though they're the smallest cloud by revenue, and they've been trying to outpace the others. But Amazon had such a head start on everybody being commercializing things like Kubernetes that Google built, right? Now they're commercializing it because they're super transactional. And that's the part of the business that I think Google's trying to learn how to do. So they hired a bunch of people like me (laughs) who've been selling stuff and plugging into the enterprise to figure out how to do it.
1: Okay, very good. So what do you do at Google every day then right now?
2: Right now I'm paid by the sales organization. So I sell the tech, but my primary job is essentially puzzle solving, if you will. I'm the architect in absence of another one. Now at Google, so I'm directly the, consider myself the nerd quarterback for enterprise customers who are coming to us saying, I wanna do these two things. How do I do it with you guys? And then we teach people how to fish, we fish a little bit, we draw pretty pictures, we do costing, and of course, all of the internal care and feeding for sales forecast sort of thing.
1: All right, so one of the projects you've been working on recently is one that I think is getting some press time. It's a bot that Wendy's is rolling out and it's using the underlying infrastructure of Google. And Bard and the large language models there love to hear a little bit about that what can you tell us about what wendy's is doing and how you guys are helping them over there at google
2: yeah i mean very little specifically other than you know there's a you can google it now it was you know it had a a whole lot of impressions on that week it was announced it was somewhat humbling how viral it became because my linkedin was blowing up i was getting texted by people so i had made a lot of connections with people over this so But functionally, you're right. Essentially, we managed to harness one of our internal LLMs and match it with Wendy's menu and solve for an interactive experience to build a generative AI interface, which is still ongoing. So we're in a heavy development phase of it, but it's LLM-backed. And frankly, it's interesting how it surprised everybody in terms of how effective it was going to wind up being at serving that data. But to understand why it's sort of like, almost have to kind of have a school in ai a little bit and i don't know how much of that detail we maybe want to kind of dive into
1: so i'd love to understand so this chatbot is sitting behind the drive-through at wendy's is there that's going to be the plan and you're going to be able to pull up and start talking into the speaker just like you normally do but instead of a person with a headset on on the other end it's going to be a chatbot so how easy was that to put together if you've got the large language model and you've got the menu, you just marry those two things together. What's some of the underlying AI that's actually happening here to make this happen?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, the breakthrough in this is almost like you compare in your mind. It's like to, to really understand it, think first about old school IVRs, the interactive voice response systems, the classic press one, press two for this that everybody hates. That's the space that everybody's coming from when it comes to interactive experiences in general, right? And they've always been super limited and they're what we call rules-based systems, which means everything you want it to know, you have to tell it specifically how to interpret. And you have to tell it every word it needs to know. You need to make lists of every sets of words it needs to know. and you need to build graphs. that's what they call them in business it's called a graph. You have to build a graph starting from hello, can I help you?" to whatever your end state is getting to. And so that's the interesting part. So the, when it comes to interacting with something like a menu, I won't talk specifically about Wendy's because I can't, but it doesn't matter. All these concepts are universal where I have a set of data. And so now and I know that I have a set of data that's so complex, such as Wendy's menu. If you look at it and compare how many toppings they have, literally the answer is we did a statistical math on it that there's over 200 billion ways to order one hamburger. At Wendy's. Oh
1: my goodness! Okay, that's right there.
2: We're talking high-level permutation math. Like, so get your mathematics brains out and think about permutations. When you have six different kinds of buns, seven different kinds of cheeses, all which can be combined with all the different toppings, it's an incredibly daunting number. Nobody thinks of it in those terms. So you can't build a procedural rules-based system to train a human being. It just really, literally can't be done. What's interesting is we've done it. We've built a breakfast spot that's been actually operating out of Wendy's location that does the breakfast menu for some time, not using an LLM, using a procedural rules-based system that took exhaustive work to make function. And, and it's pretty good. But when you see and that's actually one of the things that we showed, that we showed to the board of directors last week was that comparing those two experiences. Here's what we were able to do starting two years ago or thereabouts, and here's what we're able to do today with these models. And you can compare them and experience them. And it's something that really hard to explain it until you really see it which is why we kind of have to show it which we'll get more chances to see you know coming up but the new models the new big what we call these LLMs the large language models that's the hot thing nowadays because they're trained on gobs of billions of data points and they're trained with a lot of curated public source data to teach them how to be smart and that's the trick because these models are only going to be as usually as good. Any LLM is a big set of code that learns from a whole lot of data and then learns how to answer questions. That's really all it is. And the more data and the kinds of data you give it is where all the tricks are.
1: This doesn't seem like it was that complex. It's just a large amount of data with some code around it. How Maybe you can explain a little bit more about the LLM, but I think... I understand that part of the reason this has been possible is the computing power that we now have and the ability to to crunch this data at a reasonable time frame. Is that accurate?
2: Yeah, and we call that when you're building an application right you call it a latency budget. Right. Which is how fast can you crunch it? Because if you're doing something in real time, you want it to be real time. It's
1: got to be real time.
2: And the more information it's dealing with and the more complex the set of questions you're asking it, the longer it's going to take to return. And that tension is now the space of what's called it's actually going to be a new domain of development called prompt engineering, because these large language models, you don't program them. You interface with them from a systems point of view, very similarly to what you've seen out of BARD and, and what you've seen out of ChatGPT and those things. You have to learn how to construct them and, and give them a constraint to operate within. And that's what the public models don't do. They really don't constrain you. You're directly interfacing with them, asking the questions. It's feeding through all that data and it's returning, returning its best its best results. And all we're doing in a commercial sense is we're doing the same thing. We're just feet where we're constraining it with a set of variables to, to tell it to operate with that and a set of data to tell it to to solve from, right? So that it limits how much we ask it to extemporaneously look for things. And so that's the place with these models is the models themselves, just to quickly sort of just anchor people in a reality and what they actually are. It is an install, it is an implementation, an infrastructure level implementation of this AI model. So it is physical systems, scheduling, queuing, QoSing, and all of that to query it. So in the systems within it, I couldn't possibly describe to you that the breadth of it in what GCP is building behind, for example, Palm 2, the one they just announced. But it's a lot of systems, and so that's you know, and it takes a while, I think, to get all of these things trained. I'm not an engineer; I don't build the models. I'm partnering with the engineering teams who, who built the models, so I don't have that level of expertise of of under the hood of the model, nor would I probably have any wherewithal to speak to it, but they're fairly incredible. So yeah, it's like you can see the lights dim every time you ask it a question, sort of, you know, because it takes so much power and resources to consume. So we're on the very early front of what this means economically. Right? We hear super early that business models are just now really being tested against any of these. And they're and you know, Google's models versus you know Microsoft's and OpenAI's models are, you know, there's many different ones of them. And there's many different companies that are all right now. I think Simons and individual companies standing up trying to build their own. And it's definitely a land grab mentality right now. It's sort of feels like a gold rush a bit.
1: Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Land grab, I think, is a great way to describe it. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you think that this particular, pull Wendy's out of it specifically, let's talk drive throughs how does this impact drive-throughs? Does this speed them up? Does it where do the efficiencies where are they created in this particular type of a deployment of AI?
2: Yeah, I'll kind of zoom out. We can even talk about, I mean, in general, retail as a whole, but QSR, specifically the quick service restaurant industry, is is profound in that regard. So my sense is that and this is more opinion about than anything clearly, and not Google's opinion, but, Yeah, the goal is speed of service. And as importantly, it's also important to think not just in terms of the drive-through. You can't. Millennials, Zoomers don't order, don't want to drive through if they don't have to, right? And and so the next goal is going to become to make your mobile phone potentially a place. All this interface that we have that we can can run in front of a pedestal, it's actually somewhat more difficult to run it at the restaurant in their infrastructure than it is to, to access it from a phone. Now, that said, to make it a public accessible from the phone, it's much more difficult because then you have to have all that rigor to it. But point being, it's just speech to text to a model and then back again. and I can do that from any way I need to. So this is the thing that we're really trying to get everybody to think about is, you know, so almost like the Sonic drive-in model. Sonic busted out the drive-through by making lots of different little spots to park and I'm bring it to you. So, there's a number of announcements in the QSR industry recently, people doing, say, uh, kitchen only restaurants to service DoorDash and those sorts of things. Right. So, I suspect this is going to challenge. And it's funny, Wendy and Wendy's specifically has a lot of pride in the drive through. They invented it. They were the first ones to do it in like 71. So, everybody, nobody wants to challenge the drive through. Typically, it's such an, it's like an American sort of institution. That's a cultural thing. But I think that's going to be one of the bigger challenges is even the drive through itself. But its first step is probably gonna have to meet people where they are. And so that means it has to make the drive-through experience better for both crew and the customers. And so that's one of the goals here. In fact, if you see these models operate, it's actually, it's quite incredible the way you can, like almost like, I suspect people are also gonna try to, once they learn about them, are gonna try to stump it, right? They're all gonna try to stump the bot. And it's pretty tough to do in terms of, as long as you are precise in what you're saying, you can fire off faster than any human could ever place the order into a cash register and it will get it right and that's one of the goals is to simply just to defriction that transaction and it's one that usually makes crew unhappy as well as customers unhappy the process is not fun for people but it's it's so accepted that people sort of accept that it's something that i'm used to not liking to do and so that the goal for this should be to make it seamless first for the operation so that people can do things that they like to do, focusing on preparing food. And then the, on the customer side, I'd, we'd like to be able to transcend even the drive-through itself and then consider other ways to convey it. Because I can absolutely deliver this experience from any way you need to, from a mobile phone, kiosks or whatever, whatever best services the operations. And that's going to be up to the restaurant operators and the restaurant companies themselves to determine culturally what, who they want to be and how they want to implement it within their culture of customer flow. And it's going to be challenging, though, that's for sure.
1: Sure, that's the challenge right there, absolutely, is implementation. And it always is with this type of technology. So when we talk about implementation, though, let's talk about accuracy. So news reports have said that that Wendy's fresh AI accuracy was about 79%. And they hope to raise it to 85%. 85% doesn't seem high enough to me.
2: Well, yeah, you got to think about what's behind those numbers. The percentages when it comes to... So think about a menu interaction. A menu interaction in terms of an LLM isn't a lot of spoken language. It's a lot of jargon, meaning it's not a lot of English. It's a lot of menu items, right? And again, back to the menu complexity I talked about. There's some words like like we had to teach it baconator things like that. Now it figured it out itself because it's a public, it's a thing. But right, the word that's the accuracy speech to text accuracy isn't the challenge for any AI because when we're talking about conversational experiences, let's separate our brains with converting words to text and converting text to meaning and back again, right? So, because if you think about what a menu interaction is, it's just a data exchange. It's a bunch of words in, and it's menu data back. There's almost no conversation in it other than, did I get it right? So you don't have to build a ton there. And, And so some of the big concerns people have about with these big, large language models, doing things like the word hallucinating, if you've heard that word, You read the word. They hallucinate. Well, they hallucinate when they're asked to extemporaneously respond and they they're working off the data sets that they have. And the data sets are always imperfect because they come from people and people lie, people conflict. And so that is going to always be reflected in some of this stuff. So that's why it's important to ask it what questions you're asking it. If you expect a reliable response that has stakes financial stakes, reputational stakes, whatever those are, or ethical stakes of any kind. So, the, and, and Google has a huge rigor around ethics in this. And so we always inspect this process repeatedly around, are we doing the right thing? Are we being ethical with what we're trying to do here? So that's a process we've had to feed it through.
1: So I want to jump on what you just talked about there real quickly about ethics Talk to me about what is Google's or you know, when you say Google, this is important to Google, what does ethics mean in AI? Where do we go astray from having good ethics, or where could we go astray from having good ethics in AI? Are we just talking about using it for nefarious purposes? or what does that mean? Because there's a lot of talk now about how to put parameters. Where should the government get involved with regulation?
2: Yeah, well, clearly, there's no finite answer in that because it's almost like talking about what's a moral and and everybody's different. So it's as much a process as anything, and that's the part, right? It's, it's a, an explainable process and a transparent process for how you enforce it. That's the first thing. And point being that even though Google has a deeply rigorous process for this, would probably take a whole separate episode just to talk about with experts for that. Everybody that uses this should have a similar process to be able to hold it. If they're trying to use it for a thing on behalf of a constituency, they owe it to that constituency of that customer base to understand that because, I mean, we've already seen the like school examples of kids using it to try to generate papers, right? So there's application end of it that the public models themselves have a responsibility to potentially or not because we can just disclaim, hey, you know, this is, this is here for your use and your mileage may vary. In my sense, probably part of the reason why, I mean, Google's had these models for a long time. They didn't release them. Partly because I think there's some running with scissors happening in this space. So everywhere is going to have the same basic ethical so the question of what do you want to do with it?
1: Right. It's the application, right?
2: And what do you want to do to make sure that you measure its output so that you can audit it for reliability? It depends on the kind of data. So in the case, and that's why I think cases like interacting with a menu are a pretty good starting point for it because it's not a lot of it's data. So the system's going to fail if it messes up. It's not going to tell you that there's something that's on the menu that's not, because can, we can tell it how that we can constrain it there. That part's fairly straightforward. It's where we start getting into either you know, expecting it. For example, I think one place we may see them eventually use is going to be in data pipelining. These things can move data and we'll be capable of doing it. If we'll eventually use them for that, we'll see. But if you're going to ask it, hey, please set something up that keeps this data set in sync with this data set, it's got to get from point A to point B with a high degree of fidelity. And you have to know how to me- how you can keep it, hold it accountable to measuring that and build the systems around it to do that. Everything Every build for you're going to have to make sure what is its output and is it consistent?
1: So we talked about this being a land grab right now from a standpoint of how do we of implementing AI. So let's talk a little bit about application. We've talked about Wendy's and what they're doing there. It looks to be a, a great use of AI for a practical purpose reducing friction, streamlining the ordering process. What other areas are you seeing a practical application of these LLMs?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. There's, I think, some far simpler, more down-to-earth use cases too, because frankly, that's kind of the starting with the menu. If you look, if understanding its complexity, it's a lot and it's kind of a moon uh, It's got a lot more layers to it than something like, let's start with an example of one of the things we launched at Google I.O. two weeks ago, which is called an infobot. An infobot could take a certain source of data that you give it. And so it's sort of like a pairing of the publicly trained models, such as Palm 2 that we announced, and private repository that you're trying to make smarter and just give people a way to to interface with, say, for example, let's say you're a restaurant operator and you've got an operating manual that has all the answers that a store manager might need. Imagine an assistant you could just ask, hey, what temperature do I cook the fries at again, right? And it's got manual in its brain and it can just pump back a response out of that manual. So it can't lie because it's it's only allowed to tell to return data that you've published. So it's interesting that use case is an example to show one of the most powerful fundamental things of these models is the pairing of curated sources that you have of data, be it structured data or knowledge base type data and these models. And you marry them together and you say, hey, be smart at this. It's literally like if you think back to... Google used to have a search appliance we sold into enterprises that you put on site and it indexed your stuff. And in, when intranet was the word, right? This is sort of almost getting back to what that eventually ever wanted to be. Because now what I begin with, because in a lot of building these kinds of systems prior, like knowledge bases and, and internal customer care backends or whatever that may be, used to be very, I mean, it's a whole complex bespoke systems to do that. And in order to make an experience that makes it interactive, Using these models, you you begin with the end result. You don't have to build a whole bunch of code and then someday start testing the result. You begin with, hey, I want to curate a resource that I want to get people with questions about a topic on. As simple as that. Like as fundamental as that. I want to build a knowledge base, a great web resource that I can point one of these models to and make it smarter than I could be about how to triangulate things from it. And so that's where it's starting to... It's surprising everybody in terms of how well it can synthesize data from the sources it's given. And that's the brand new space. But I think those kinds of use cases are a lot simpler and punchy that may be great use cases. This is the land grab space. There is an unlimited number of pairings of types of data and types of knowledge, resources, and what kinds of things would you want to make either conversational or at a minimum, just searchable,
1: searchable, right? Right. Yeah. And I'll say, we didn't pay you to, to say what you just did, but that's exactly what capacity does. <laughs> at capacity, we take those internal data sets. And for several years, we've been applying our kind of proprietary AI to index and search those and using our bot to present that. But these LLMs have made it that much more robust and conversational and engaging overnight. So this is- uh...
2: Interesting though, you said conversational. Isn't that funny? That is when you get your hands on one of these, an actual enterprise implementation, one of these, because so, you know, ChatGPT, you know, BARD, they're both separate things that are made for public consumption. And they do this thing. And the enterprise, I'll call them enterprise, but they're all enterprise models. But the ones that are attached to cloud with the tool set guys like me that says, hey, build a bunch of middleware, to enrich this thing, those models are pretty incredible in in what they've been able to do so far. And so everybody's trying to learn, trying to match, they're playing the match game. We're all playing the corporate match game right now. What makes the most sense for this? And, you know, it's fun to see. And like I said, it's fun when you can begin with something like we took a PDF of a manual. fed it the PDF and said, here, go, become an expert on it. And it could. Its only limitation was that we fed it a PDF. So the only thing we can return is pages out of a PDF. So change that into an interactive experience. Now I can feed people as a conduit into an interactive experience. And so it's just funny though that the systems, when they get connected into cloud, you interact with them somewhat conversationally. You do. It's no longer. I mean, it's not like a Python endpoint with a class library you have to learn. Yes, so there will be, and those things will all be evolving. But building prompts and feeding it data and building it prompts and teaching is mostly conversational now, which is interesting. So there's going to be a whole new kind of skill in The marriage, you're going to have to know the code behind it to an extent to know how it's going to feed into and out of things. But managing the models is mostly squishy. We have going back to the 80s, kind of a fuzzy logic thing. It really is. And so that's going to be a new front of art form. Art meeting sciences is curating those to make them the most effective. Because I guarantee you, there's 10 ways to skin a cat, 10 ways to build a menu interactive experience, and probably more. So, you know, we're all doing it at once.
1: So what does the impact of what's happening with BARD and ChatGPT, how does that intersect the Siri and Alexa AI that we've been interacting with for several years now? What's the intersection of those two?
2: That's a good question. They don't have to intersect. I mean, so that's more of a public model question because my sense is, you know, I know Google's assistant, for example, I think Google's starting on that business unit starting to shift a bit more towards app and Android-based stuff. So that I think that ecosystem is on a journey itself. I mean let's face it, a lot of people begin with it using it for speech to text. And that's its linkage right now between the between that and those models are it is a channel, a potential channel into into the models. Into those models. Okay. Yeah. Right. But it's not changing to those, I don't think, anytime soon. And functionally, if you think about it, if these things work well enough. I mean again, like I said before, speech to text being separable from all of this. Everybody's got that locked already. So it's almost like people aren't really focusing on that right now because that already exists. That's just plugging it in. So it happens to be chat, GPT, are, 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 you our know, text interface based, but it's trivial to plug in speech-to-text interface and make them suddenly conversational. So I think that part, even though they could be, they are themselves. I know Palm, Two, I think is trained in some 140 languages or something, so they can be conversant, too. And so there will be a blending of dedicated speech-to-text APIs and some capabilities like that that these models may be called on to employ. But I think that's what we're going to see is they're so universally useful that we're going to have to still, I think, see where the demand curve pulls it, because that's the direction it goes. It gets, you build a cool new toy, you present it to the market, and the market pulls it the what direction it wants to. right? So quick service always pulls it to the retail experience, to the, to the menu. right? And so each industry is going to have a different place that they're probably going to want to these use cases.
1: Yep. That makes sense. So as you think about the future, and, and this is kind of an interesting question because so much has happened in the last six months when it comes to AI, right? Two months, right?
2: I mean, just... these two months have been, I can feel the inflection. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you're even saying like just in two months, there's a huge inflection. And I think you were saying earlier when we were chatting that you think maybe we're to the knee of the hockey stick, but we are about to, I mean, we're about to start to shoot up with application of this technology. And would you also say we're about to shoot up with just the continued evolution of this technology, not just the application?
2: All the above. I think it's all moving forward. I think this was a leapfrog moment, you know, with these models. Again, Palm Two, I'll just use that phrase again because that's the sort of the poster child right now that Google announced. But there's everybody developing AI has generations of models behind them that are all you know solving for iterating on what makes them better and tunes them better. I think the biggest limiting factor is going to be the commercial aspects of it, like I mentioned, potentially. The systems these things run on are not cheap and they're wide open, they're being funded for a reason. And so They're being so liberally funded in order to defriction that demand curve. To let people play with it as many different ways as we can, it's probably mostly wasted right now. Half the code we're writing to frame this stuff is probably going to get rewritten in six months for a lot of this stuff. As everything changes, as we're settling on how to repeat this, and every, I think, business is doing similar things, who's representing their various stacks of AI. And so, yeah, it's going to turn though, pretty quickly. Uh, how quickly, I don't know, how profoundly, no one can say, but it certainly feels like it could be really generational impactful. For example, my son is studying computer science in, at OU in college. And I'm telling him, he's, he was taking a Python class and I was telling him, hey, have you used Bard or ChatGPT to help you generate code, for example, because they can do it. And for some of the syntactical stuff, the semantic work, code, these things are incredible. And so we're going to see those places like that that are gonna be, you're gonna have to almost learn how to work with it if you wanna be fast enough.
1: Right, you almost have to use leverage that technology to be at the level you need to be at as a developer then.
2: It could very well be. And so it's interesting that we look at that and say, and it's funny that that's gotten a lot of press, the notion of that, because both for plagiarism topics, right, conversations about kids using things school and from coders, just because I kind of swim among some coders, it's a profound topic now.
1: Yeah. I can see it's interesting. So you think about, okay, how do I use this tool to do my job better or to accelerate something I'm doing? I do think that there's still that tension though, of you don't want kids that are still in grade school, learning to formulate sentences and to kind of leapfrog that basic, because if, you know, what are we teaching the AI? about how to speak if we don't know how to do it ourselves, right? Like, I mean, I, I feel like there's some fundamental things where you, where AI shouldn't be there, but there's a lot of things where you might say, well, they're learning how to code. They shouldn't use it to generate it. Well, but what's the point of learning how to code is to just create more and better code. So if you use the tools that are available to you.
2: Yeah, no, it's true. I can't see a way in which that any humans are going to be able to abandon the need to have to learn how to code. That's for sure. I agree. But in fact, more profoundly, so one of the more difficult skills is sort of, Sanity check in somebody else's. You're going to come at one of these models someday and say, "Hey, build me a Python class that imports a CSV and transforms it into a JSON." For example, right? Go and it can do that. And I can take it, and just cut and paste it. So maybe gone are the days of, you know, the online forums and sharing code snippets. You just kind of use those, but you still have to synthesize it into your thing. You still have to know what it does and know how to, you know, how to make it more efficient. But who knows? I mean, there's a lot of places where. Customer that's got an ancient Java stack, and they want to go from an IBM uh, proprietary infrastructure into a Linux open source, and they want to get off the WebLogic stuff. You could take that Java code and spit it into an LLM and say, "Do your best and see if it runs," and then refactor from there. So there's use cases like that that I can see things just vastly accelerating on so many fronts of things that are commonly outsourced today by these customers anyway. So it's going to challenge a lot of what we do for inshore, outshore, automate in this kind of space in a way that. White-collar businesses don't like to have happened to them.
1: Much disruption, yes. <laughs> right. Okay, so immediately, hockey stick happening here. But put on your futurist hat for a minute. What do you think we're looking at in the next five to 10 years with regards to AI and the impact?
2: Yeah, I know. I mean, I can't predict where it's going to succeed. But we're going to see places where it's going to work. We're going to see probably a lot. I'm certain that there's going to be tons of factions that build up sort of against it, there's always resistance to it. And it's sort of this, and it is always tied to any place where it, where it plays in, in the labor space. And I think it's a critical you know, conversation for us to have as a society, but that's sort of a societal level conversation because you can't separate automation from economy, right? And every industry has been automated. I mean, we don't have to make food anymore, right? Because we it takes one of us to make it for a quarter million or something, right? So there's that leverage has happened almost everywhere. So there's going to be a lot of conversations, I think on the various industries that begin to become that, that can see where this is headed as far as what we should do with. It. So, but so I think it's going to be very disruptive on the places where it is. I do have confidence that I think a lot of retail experiences can be automated with this. I think a lot of retail experiences can be enhanced with this, and I think in a way that we can embrace and don't need to fear any more than we do anything that makes us not have to do certain kinds of work, right? But because I mean I don't think I you well, whatever it's my opinion I guess but I don't ever see that you know making things easier is usually a good thing, but it's a tough conversation when you're talking about an industry, right?
1: Yeah. Do you think making things easier is usually a good thing or is not
2: always a good thing? I think making things easier is, is almost always a good thing. How can I mean there's I'd need to see reason why not, but consequences happen. Economic consequences happen, and that's where we struggle as a society to properly you know reconcile the outcomes of that and the potential profit taking that tends to happen in those things. And so there needs to be a conversation, I think, about that to make sure that we, you know, that we do it again, ethically, but that's about that ethical framework I talked about, which every business has to have and should have. Make sure that it can have that conversation. Cause if it's not trying to have that conversation, then that's the bigger thing to blame is that you're not having that conversation. You're just doing.
1: Right. I think that's key is taking this as, as you think about AI, because it has the a power for good, it has a power for also well, significant disruption that has consequences, is making sure you have a plan with the implementation and an unknown outcome or a, a targeted outcome, and that you have a framework to work that through. I think this is very important. So, well, as we kind of wrap up here, and I really appreciate the time today, any other thoughts you, you have around what you're doing there specifically with Wendy's that you can share or just in general with AI, that kind of final thoughts that you might have?
2: Uh, good question. I think, no, I mean, it sort of speaks for itself. My sense is that, you know, clearly I'm not going anywhere. I really enjoy what I do. And it's, it's fun. It's fun to watch this happen. And it's interesting because, you know, we, as we have experimented with this, at least my use case for so long, and that's really what we kind of call it, this is coming out it's it was fun to watch the pace at which we went internally from i'm not sure if this thing is going to work for 2 billion use cases per burger to wow i can't believe how incredibly good it is so it's the surprises that are the thing that i think people should be kind of expecting out of it expect to be surprised expect your thesis to probably be a little bit wrong on how you're going to what you're going to do with it and what it's better at but the things that it's better at it's pretty existentially amazingly better at and look for that, you know, and don't feed your bias into what you think these things are good at. Right. It's just like you throw it the data and see what it can do first. Right. And that's been one of the experiences I've seen as we've developed it in some ways, when we figured out how to attach it to the last model that we've, the most current model we're running it on, we had to tell it to do a little bit more for us because we were trying to hold back expecting, yeah, it's not going to be able to handle this or that, but sure can. So it will surprise you in what it can do, but just have to be very realistic though about, you know, what your near-term goals are? What's something tangible that you can you know achieve with this?
1: That's great advice. So, if speaking of advice, if you could go back to your twenty-one-year-old self, and maybe that's your son in college right now, what would you, advice would you be giving? Are you giving your son, or would you be giving your twenty-one-year-old self around how to interact with AI here in the future?
2: You're talking my twenty-one-year-old self if I'm here now. Yes. Okay, so basically, it's what I told my son. I would essentially listen, get close to it. I think that I mean I, I love the time that uh, he's in school because he's still he's a, just a freshman, he'll be turn, turning sophomore, and he'll graduate with an opportunity to have already experienced some of this. And so, and it's going to either be his best partner in IT, right, knowing how to use these systems alongside him, and is also his greatest opportunity. Within IT, if he, can, if he can understand it profoundly and has me for a dad, I'm going to be feeding him a little bit of inside baseball, right? To say, if you focus on this, I think that for sure the next 15 years, it is one of the most fertile spaces for a career. So there's a career opportunity there that is, I think, transcendental. There's also opportunity to build within it. And I'm a maker, I just can't help it. I'm a tinkerer, I build things, I fix cars, I do other things. I have to have output. And so it's fun for me that I've gotten to see this kind of output and the kinds of things that it can do. And so I'm certain that, you know, if I was talking to myself, I'd say the same thing. I'd say, focus on it, double down it, but don't forget to keep your feet on the floor of the infrastructure. It's still a thing. It's still just a computer with an IP address and or a set of things that you can connect with it. So you have to understand it on those terms. Like where is it going to, where's the rubber going to meet the road with this thing? Because all of the conversation in the industry is conceptual and can be somewhat confusing to an actual practical use case of it. All the online speak about, you know, people's anecdotes about their experiences with interfacing with these models only partially informs what do with it when properly built. Right. And that's also just so you get to learn it, but don't ignore the basics. Right. We're like, that's the hard part about cloud. Anyway, cloud is. Yeah, you got to know, you got to, I'm glad you can code, but you know, networking too, and identity and access management policy, and databases, and pipelines, you have to know a little bit about everything, and maybe a lot about a lot of things. So it's really up at the skill level here, which is really the point, right?
1: Right. We're getting better, and things are improving. And that's the point. So, okay, one last question. And because we talk a lot about customer experience on this podcast, and experiences, I think experiences are what's critical to creating memories and memories are something that we as humans have that lasts. Memories are, we can latch onto, we don't keep things as great as it is to, you know, have that car or that, you know, thing. Memories are the things that we have and we can keep with us through, through our lifetimes. So because customer experience and and experiences create those memories, I love to ask my guests, what is an experience that you would like to create, to achieve those memories for either yourself or your family, that's just maybe don't think about the cost of it. But is there an experience, a life experience that you would love to create for yourself or your family that would create memories? It's
2: a good question. Uh, using AI, constraining myself. It could
1: no, you could constrain yourself or not. That you know,
2: build memories. Well, I don't know if I've got a solution for that. I mean, on my memory building, I like to be ex- experiential. It's usually involving going places or taking them somewhere. So. For me, you know, I mean, frankly, I'm trying to plan maybe even like a European vacation for the whole fam next next summer when my daughter is in between high school and college. So if I'm memory building, I'm liking to drag my kids through culture and see what sticks.
1: There you go. I love that. We love to do that as a family as well. And that seems to be a, a consistent answer. Travel people. I mean, Take advantage of the opportunities when they're there because they won't always be there and, and travel is one great way to, to experience. If we're, if we're talking about broadening our horizons here, taking AI and applying it and really blowing up the future in a positive way. One way to do that just personally is to experience new things, new cultures. So that's a, that's a great way to make memories. So, well, I hope you're able to do that with your family. And Charles, it was great chatting with you today. Enjoyed the conversation here around AI and the impact it's having. We're living in exciting times for sure. And I look forward to hearing more about what you do over there at Google as uh, as you guys progress there with your plan uh, and, and rolling, continuing to roll out exciting things around AI. So thanks for your time today. Appreciate the, the conversation.
2: Yeah, you got it, James. It was a pleasure. Practical
0: AI, the capacity for good is brought to you by Capacity, an automated help desk, knowledge base, and customer experience platform. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found, and click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And if you would like to improve your customer experience and internal operations, head over to capacity.com and get started for free. On behalf of the whole team